Well, good morning once again. Welcome to Adaletz Kaim. We have several visitors this morning, so welcome visitors. Um, I'd like to greet those who are listening online, wherever and whenever you are listening to this. I hope you are blessed. This week's Torah portion, Shalak, gives us a great picture of the kingdom, of course. This was a pretty fruitful week for me, spiritually speaking. I gained a little bit of revelation in my own understanding as the Bible this week. See, we all come into this messianic movement, quote-unquote, with uh, from somewhere. Usually that's a traditional Christian background, and we have uh, sometimes the synthesis of that and the Torah worldview takes a little bit to work out. When one comes in here, there's many long-held systems that you have in place, right? Such as how one thinks of, for example, atonement or justification, right? Any of these theological constructs, they can be maybe improved upon a little bit, um, especially if you consider the cultural context of the first century and maybe try to see uh, those theological constructs through that lens, sort of like first century theology. I wish there was a book on that floating around somewhere, but they just sort of did it on the fly. So this week, the Spirit helped me receive a little more clarity, and I thought, I'd just like to share that with you. Parshat Shalak opens up with the children of Israel poised to enter the land, right? Let's go there this morning. Um, Numbers chapter 13. Oh, I don't have page numbers for you this week, so you guys are on your own. So up until this point, the uh, Adonai, right, has saved them out of bondage with a mighty outstretched arm, got them out of Egypt. He has redeemed them. He had them pass through the sea, which was sort of like a mikvah of sorts for the nation who was sort of being born again. Things are going good. They had a few setbacks. But he fed them, watered them, they had shelter. All their needs are met, and now they are poised to make a short trip into the land. They're almost there, only days away from moving into the land. So it's looking really good for them to pr finally move into the promised land. And that gets us to this week's Torah portion. Adonai, this is 13 verse 1, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Send some men on your behalf to investigate the land of Canaan, which I am giving to Bnei Yisrael. Each man you are to send will be a prince of the tribe of his fathers, a man from each tribe. So you can read there, according to the word of Adonai, Moses picks uh, these uh, leaders here. These are the names Moses sent. This is verse 16. I'm going to kind of pick it up. These are the names of the men Moses sent to investigate the land. Now he gave Hosea, the son of Nun, the name Joshua. Okay, so we're gonna, he's going to send out some 12 spies here as he sent them to explore the land of Canaan. He said, said to them, go up there through the Negev, go up to the hill country, see what the land is like and the people living there, whether they might be strong or weak, few or many, what kind of the land uh, and what kind of land are they living, is it good or bad? Also, what about the cities in which they're living? Are they unwalled or do they have fortifications? How is the soil, fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So 
They go out there, of course, and they uh, search all around, get some grapes, and they head back to Moses here in verse 26. Verse 26 says, They traveled and returned to Moses, Aaron and the entire community of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, at Kaddish in the wilderness of Paran. They gave the report to them and and the entire assembly. They showed the land's fruit. And they gave their account to him and said, We went into the land which you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. Remember, that's one of the promises. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. This is some of its fruit, except the people living in the land are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the sons of Anak there. Some of the, these would be the uh, descendants of the Nephilim. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, Amorites are all living in the mountains, and the Canaanites are living near the sea along the bank of the Jordan. So, that's very bad news. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, we should definitely go up and capture the land, for we can certainly do it. So, Caleb here has a different story. But the men who had gone up with him said, we cannot attack these people because they're stronger than we, and they spread among B'nai Yisrael a bad report about the land they had explored. It's very, this is one of the worst uh, times, of course, in Israel's history, the bad report coming out. Let's jump ahead to 14, chapter 14, 26. Once that report comes out, there's no taking it back, and Adonai is very, very angry with them. Adonai then said to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long will this wicked community be grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of B'nai Yisrael grumbling against me. So tell them, as surely as I live, says Adonai, I will do to you just as I heard you say in my ears. In this very wilderness, your bodies will drop. Every one of you numbered 20 years of age and older, who was numbered in the census and grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land uh, about which I uh, lifted my hand to make home for you, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Indeed, what a terrible day for B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. And this is what we talked about on Wednesday night, was there's a lot of connections here with, um, of course, the New Testament. We have a minute. The half Torah reading, no, the Brit Hadashah reading, if you were to draw that from our calendars that we give out, it gives a different one than the Hebrews chapter 3 that Stearns gives out. The calendar directs you to Matthew chapter 10, and you'll see why, obviously. If you turn to Matthew chapter 10, you'll see an obvious parallel. You can do it in this one, too, maybe, and give your page number. I think most people here probably should be prolific enough in their Bible knowledge to get to page 930 in the Pew Bible. Instructions to the 12, you will see obvious parallels, of course. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Yeshua summoned his 12 disciples, right, just like the 12 spies, 
and gave them authority over unclean spirits so they could drive them out and heal every kind of disease and sickness. Now, these are the names of the 12 emissaries, uh, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, Jacob, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, Jacob, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judah the man from Kirot, the one who also betrayed him. Yeshua sent out the twelve and ordered them, Don't, do not go to the Gentiles and, go and do not enter into any Samaritan town, but instead go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's sending them to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. As you, as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with sarat, leprosy, and drive out demons. Uh, freely you received, freely give. Do not get gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for the journey or two shirts or sandals or a walking stick for the worker is entitled to his food. So you see the obvious, you know, Moses sends out 12, Yeshua sends out 12, Lancaster, in his commentary, saw many connections. One interesting one that I'd never really quite put together, which led to, you know, how the ball gets rolling when you start to connect some of these dots. He says, The generation of Moses stood at the border of the Promised Land. That's in today's Parsha. If Moses had brought them into Canaan, they would have enjoyed the kingdom immediately. It's an interesting thought. The generation of the master, Yeshua, also stood at the edge of the kingdom. If they had heeded Yeshua's message of the gospel and repented, they would have entered the kingdom of heaven. That's an interesting notion that if the people would have brought back 12 good reports instead of 10 bad ones, perhaps they would have entered the land, the messianic era would have commenced, and maybe we wouldn't be sitting here right now. There's lots of comparisons, not just the 12 spies and 12 disciples. When you read through the narratives, the use of 40 days, the use of three days, there's so many uh, connections. It really begins to connect both ends of the book. But Lancaster does do some commentary on um, this week's Torah portion, and he actually um, brought up Hebrews chapter 3. And so I was reading last night. Um, so many Hebrews chapter 3 with tears are red. And there was something in there that really got me thinking. This was really the crux of it for me this week. Because I just couldn't get enough of that. Those parallels. But Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to head um, at the moment. Hebrews is a very wonderful book. The most probably misunderstood and mishandled one. Um... I like the titles of the uh, headings of the paragraphs. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 7 of the book of Hebrews, it says, Listen and obey, or harden and fall away. I mean, there it is. Those listening online didn't hear Tirza. So I'm going to read uh, just um, the first about 10 verses. I'm going to read about 10 verses here, I think. Um, chapter 3, verse 7 of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, just as the Ruach HaKodesh says, the Holy Spirit, so now the writer of Hebrews is really going to bring up the, uh, the bad report. 
and the whole generation in general. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. There your fathers put me to the test. Though they saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked by this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they always have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you has fallen, uh, has had, none of you has an evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day by day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of the Messiah if we hold our original convictions firm until the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. Now, which ones heard and rebelled? Indeed, was it not all that came out of Egypt with Moses? Okay. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Was it not those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter in because of lack of trust. And so the writer here of the book of Hebrews is linking a lot of stuff together. He's linking rest with Shabbat. He's linking that to the promised land in reference of this week's Torah portion. He's also, uh, I suppose I should say he or she, the author is also linking that to the Messianic era, the hope of the kingdom. There's a whole lot all being just linked together in these few paragraphs here. Because the writer knows the first century audience, first century Jewish believers would be the ones receiving this text, and those people need encouragement. So the content of this book is a little better understood by someone who has an appreciation for Torah and a love for temple worship. They're going to uh, be able to see all the different links of the language of uh, sacrifice and uh, a lot of the other ritual language that's in the book of Hebrews. In the absence of such context or a love for a temple worship or appreciation for Torah, you can get some misinterpretations, something that maybe was not the point of the writer, but I digress. Let's continue. The next couple of verses is really what got me thinking. Verse 4, let us fear then through a promise of entering, though a promise of entering his rest is left open, some of you would have seemed to have fallen short, Verse 2, for we also have had good news proclaimed to us just as they did. Let's think about that. We, or the writer, claims that they have received good news. This is the word gospel. They received the gospel just as they did. Who is they? That's Moses and the children of Israel. Also received the good, note, the good news or the gospel. And I was trying to wrap my head around that because I always thought of the gospel as a life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua. Obviously, Moses is not, and the children of Israel were not being taught the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua. What is this good news? 
starting to do circles in my head here. If you Google what is the gospel, a lot of these answers are very, very close to the same. There's a website called gotquestions.org that fields more questions about the Bible and Scripture than any other website by far. Um, you know, it's a, and it's a very large organization, and they do good at times. So coming from a Christian perspective, which is where I, my, my childhood and early adult life perspective was, I always thought of the gospel as uh, life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua. According to gotquestions.org, which is going to have a really reformed kind of background, most of these guys that run this website are re Christian reformed, which is, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. What they say in their answer, it's quite several paragraphs. There's two pages are printed out at about a 14-point font. They start out, I agree with them. They said the gospel is, broadly speaking, the whole of Scripture. I can get with that. You know, that's okay, broadly speaking. And then they go on to focus in a little bit. They talk about the resurrection on the third day. He was raised for a justification. He talks about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, write the resurrection verses. It's all stuff that's all very, very familiar to us. Um, they only bring up the afterlife in here, I think, once of all this uh, explanations here. The Yeshua's a propitiation for our sins. A lot of this language is familiar to most of us, but I think the word heaven only appears once and kingdom doesn't appear at all. But there's lots of other stuff that we would find very familiar in most general explanations of what the gospel is. The problem is, in my head, none of this stuff was the good news or the gospel that was given to Moses and the children of Israel. So what was given to them? I got a little help from um, the New Testament commentary by Dr. David Stern of Blessed Memory. Dr. David Stern says, regarding Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, the good news or the gospel that was given to Moses and the children of Israel was a promise of entering his rest in the promised land. Sounds pretty, yes, that's the promises they had gotten. So then I got to thinking, that's, you start to link all this stuff together in your head. Is that like an alternate or is that an expanded view of the gospel? How should I think about this? Because this is a bit of a new idea for me. Thankfully, Dr. David Stern um, was able to say that and not me. But it still, it didn't overhaul what I thought of the gospel. It's not like I'm going to take what I thought of the gospel and just throw it out. But it does add some depth. You know, it takes the work that Yeshua did, which they, it's all these things, right? It takes the work that Yeshua did and it focuses it on something, which is a destination, a kingdom, which is something Yeshua actually taught about a lot too, was seek first the kingdom. Yeshua told people to repent, right? For the kingdom of heaven was at hand, but there was no repentance, so there's no kingdom. We are encouraged to repent, of course, to shuva, turn to God and follow his ways and seek the kingdom. 
Thus, I think the good news, or gospel in my head, at least my expanded view now, is more kingdom-focused. That should, the kingdom aspect should be a lot more appear a whole lot in these pages and definitions of the gospel. Yes, in a general sense, it is all of the Bible. We agree on that. And you narrow that focus in some, and it includes a life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua. And if you like these things like justification and all these other theological constructs, that's kind of all floating in the water there too. But the goal of that work was for the sake of the kingdom. That was the focal point of the good news. That's what Yeshua kept telling people was repent for the kingdom, a destination like uh, the promised land for the children of Israel. And this is encouraging me because I think it helps deepen my understanding of the faith. I see that the hope of the kingdom goes far back all the way to the beginning of the book. It's not a first century concept. And it's encouraging seeing that the goal doesn't change. You know, Old Testament or new, it's the same goal. It's entering a promised land, entering a rest, entering a kingdom. And the writer of Hebrews is just linking all these things together, showing us how it's all, uh, it's, a, it's a hope and an expectation that's been there from the very beginning, not just from the first century. Same vision given to Abraham, seen by the prophets and promised by Yeshua. That is our goal. That is our hope. Um, I will pray for all of you to continue to trust to enter that blessed land, and I hope that you would do the same for me. And I would just, uh, I'll end with this uh, blessing that may we all be encouraged by his word. May we all be seeking to understand it deeper and have the spirit reveal more of it to us. Uh, may our hope be in the kingdom, and may that be strengthened in all the promises that are made all throughout Scripture, and may that Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit, be at work within us, opening our eyes, bringing us revelation, and giving us that peace that only comes from Him.